What's up, Repray Share family? We are back with another Bible study message for you. And as you all know, we are continuing in our journey through the book of Revelation. We have now reached the sixth letter, and this letter is given to the church in Philadelphia. And this message is being delivered by Jorian Wilson, who breaks down this letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is also the second of the only two churches that did not receive rebuke from God. So we truly hope and pray that if you hear this message, it resonates with you and it empowers you. And yes, it's always a privilege to be with each and every one. Thank you for to Sean and Angie for giving me the opportunity to share today. And if you have been with us lately, you will know that we have been in a series in Revelation, right? We've been looking at what God has to say about the end of times as what he has to say about what is going on currently and what he has to say for the future. And so we last week we talked about the church in Sardis. And if anybody remembers the church in Sardis, they're a very interesting church and maybe one of my favorites because I resonate with their story, right? So Angie taught us that the church in Sardis had a reputation for being alive, but in fact, they were spiritually dead, right? And so God calls the church of Sardis to repent. Today, we're moving forward to talk about the church in Philadelphia. And before we get too far in Philadelphia, I want to tell you a little bit about the history of this city, right? And so the city of Philadelphia was founded about a century and a half before Christ with the intent to promote the Greek language and the Greek culture in the Asian minor. The city got its name from its founder. His name was Attalus II. And a little bit about Attalus is that he was loyal to his brother, and that loyalty earned him the name of Philadelphus, meaning brotherly love, resulting in Philadelphia, which is the city of brotherly love. So hopefully that gives you a little context, a little background. Uh, Philadelphia was also known for their beautiful buildings, but they often had earthquakes, which caused people to frequently have to evacuate the city. So today's text, we're going to see what Jesus has to say through John to the church of Philadelphia. And they're gonna be a little bit different than the church of Sardis from last week. We're gonna see that Jesus is praising the church of Philadelphia for their obedience to his commands and for their perseverance and not denying him amidst persecution. So today we are going to look at Revelation chapter three, verses seven through 13, if you're looking at your Bibles. And if not, I'm gonna read it so. Don't worry about it. Here it goes. Revelation 3, verses 7 through 13, the message to the church in Philadelphia. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. This is a message from the one who is holy and true, the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. I know all the things you do. I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. Because you have obeyed my command to preserve, I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. 
All who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God, and they will never have to leave it. And I will write on them the name of my God, and they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from God. I will also write on them my new name. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you for your love, mercy, and grace on our lives. We thank you for the word that you have given us in Revelation, the word that we're going to study about the Church of Philadelphia today. God, we ask that you would open our hearts, open our minds to whatever it is that you want to speak to us, whatever it is that you want to remind us of, whatever it may be that you want to convict us of. And Lord, we pray that we would leave this Bible study transformed for the better. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's dive right into the Church of Philadelphia. Looking at this first verse here, right? It says, write this letter to the angel of the Church of Philadelphia. This is the message from the one who is holy and true. The one who has the key of David, what he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. So we've talked about this in previous weeks, right? So we've discussed that the angel of the church, if you don't know by now, is simply the pastor, the leader of the church. So for we pray, share, Sean Pierce would be the angel of our church, right? That's understood. We also know that Jesus is the one who is writing or giving John the instructions to write to the churches, right? And so Jesus is the speaker here. But let's take a moment to analyze the way that he has described himself in verse seven. So, right, we see firstly that Jesus says that he is holy and true. When we read these words, we know that these are not just merely uh, describing tendencies of Jesus but they are describing his very being, his identity. He as himself is holy and he is true. Uh, we know that God is, we know that Jesus alone is holy, right? But furthermore, there are two ancient Greek words for the word true. One of those words means true as in not false, and the other means true as in not fake. The ancient Greek word that we're referring to in this piece of the text is called aletonus, which is the second definition, which means true and not fake. So when Jesus says he is holy and true, here he is saying he is holy, but he's also true. He is genuine. He is Jesus alone in all that he is. He is the real God and the real man. Secondly, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open. If you heard this before, you know that people like to quote this scripture, probably not knowing they're quoting the scripture, but they like to say that what Jesus opens, no one can close, and what he closes, no one can open, right? And so when he's talking about this scripture right here, when he mentions this, he's referring to an Old Testament passage in the book of Isaiah chapter 22, verses 20 through 23. And this passage says, and I will call my servant Elikim, son of Hilkah, to replace you. I will dress him in your royal robes, and I will give him your title and your authority. And he will be a father to the people of Jerusalem and Judah. I will give him the key to the house of David, the highest position in the royal court. When he opens doors, no one will be able to close them. When he closes doors, no one will be able to open them. So when Jesus says he's the one who has the key of David, He's saying that he has the highest position. Furthermore, we know that Jesus is reminding us that he has the power 
and authority to admit people or to exclude. He has the power and authority to open doors or to close doors. So let's move forward looking at verse eight. Let's learn here what Jesus knows about the church of Philadelphia. The text says, I know all the things that you do. And I have opened a door for you that no one can close. You have little strength, yet you obeyed my word and did not deny me. Each time I read these words and each time we read these words, I know all the things you do. We should have two very distinct responses, right? So the first response when we read these words, I know all the things you do. Our first response should be to tremble with fear that the God of the universe knows everything that we do, think, and imagine. We should tremble with fear knowing that he knows all of this about us. And then our parallel response to the fear and trembling should also be reverence, gratitude for God's grace and mercy on our lives, that he knows everything that we do, think, and imagine, yet he has saw fit to allow us to continue living. He has saw fit to allow us to continue to have purpose. He has saw fit to allow us to simply exist and be called his own. Now, pivoting back to the church of Philadelphia, Jesus says that he has opened a door that for them that no one can close. When we speak about doors, right, what comes to mind? We think about opportunities, right? People often talk about God opened this door for me, or God closed this door for me if there's an opportunity that goes away, right? So when we think about when we think about doors, we think about opportunity. In this specific instance, we might interpret this to mean that Jesus has opened a door to his kingdom for the Church of Philadelphia. In other words, Jesus is saying that he is the door, right? If you think about this, Jesus is the opportunity. By him dying on the cross in our place, he has given us the opportunity for right standing with God and to be a part of eternal life in heaven in his presence, right? So when Jesus says he's opened this door, he's essentially saying that, hey, I am the door. Through what I have done, I have given you all the opportunity because of your obedience, because of following me to have eternal life, to have fellowship with God. Continue on with verse eight. It says that they have little strength. Describing Philadelphia as having little strength likely isn't referring to their physical fitness or their physique, right? They could have been doing 100 push-ups a day. I doubt they had gyms back then, but they might have been doing marathons. They might have had a lot of physical strength. But what I think it's referring to here is the strength in numbers, right? So they may have been few compared to those who were opposing them compared to the larger society. And so it says, stating that, um, so despite their lack of strength, right, their lack of strength and number, we learn that because of their obedience and faithfulness, Jesus has opened a door to the kingdom, and he is saying no one will be able to strip them of their opportunity. Moving on to verse 9, we find out a little bit about those who are opposing the church of Philadelphia. Verse 9 reads as, look, I will force those who belong to Satan's synagogue, those liars who say they are Jews but are not, to come and bow down at your feet. They will acknowledge that you are the ones I love. 
So there's a couple of things we need to understand from this verse specifically. So it's firstly, a synagogue is a building where Jewish assembly or congregation meets for religious worship or instruction. Uh, for us, a synagogue like is synonymous to the church, right? We go to church for fellowship. We go to church to worship. We go to church for to hear the word of God. That's the same thing with the synagogue is for the Jewish uh, culture. When Jesus says the synagogue of Satan, he isn't speaking about people who literally and intentionally worship Satan. But what he is speaking about is a people who claim to be Jews, but are not because they don't have any spiritual connection to Abraham or to the faith. In fact, they were the ones who were persecuting the Christians. Jesus says that he will force them to come and bow down at the feet of the church of Philadelphia. And when I read this, I thought immediately about Psalms 23 verse 5, where David says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies, right? That's exactly what Jesus is saying here, that these people who oppose you will come and bow down. You, They will have to come and worship you. He's going to prepare a table for the church of Philadelphia in the presence of their enemies. And I also thought about a scripture from the book of Psalms, that chapter 110, verse 1, where David wrote, and it says, speaking about what Jesus has to say, he says, sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies and make them your footstool under your feet. Jesus is simply reminding the church of Philadelphia here of promises he made long ago, that his their enemies would be their footstool, that their enemies, that they would be, have a, uh, that God will make a table for them in the presence of their enemies. Jesus is telling them that their enemies will come and bow down at their feet because they are the ones who Jesus loves. Jesus says that they will acknowledge that the Church of Philadelphia is the people that he loves. Those people who inhabit uh, what Jesus calls Satan's synagogue are likely to be the same descent of Jesus, right? Jesus was a Jew. These people are Jewish. So they are probably somehow connected on their family line. However, Jesus didn't love simply those because of their family ties, right? Jesus instructs us and tells us in scripture that he loves those who obeys the commands of his father. Listen to what he has to say in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50. It says, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Put a pin right there. I don't know about you and your mamas, but if I was to act like this with my mama, I would have a, a black eye. I would have to come up here and teach with some shades on. Mama don't play that. So Jesus says, who is my mother? The woman who has given him birth, he says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and my brother and sister and father and everybody else, right? Here we see that Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the woman who has given him birth, but instead he's acknowledging his followers, those who are doing the will of the father. He says, anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and my brother and my sister. We have to understand this is what Jesus is referring to when he says, you are the ones that I love. Yes, these people are Jews just like me. Yes, they may be my 
blood. Yes, they may be my relatives, but you are the ones I love because you have been obedient, you have been faithful, and you have preserved amidst all that you are experiencing. As we look at verse 10, we learn that obedience is better. Listen to what verse 10 has to say. It says, because you have obeyed my command to preserve, I will protect you. I will protect you from the great time of testing that will come upon the whole world to test those who belong to this world. It is important to note that obedience is better here, right? The obedience of the Church of Philadelphia did not prevent them from persecution, right? We have to understand that, right? When we follow Jesus, we're not signing up for an easy life. We're not signing up to uh, be absolved from all the heartache and things that go on with this world, being persecuted, being ousted, whatever you want to say. When we sign up to follow Jesus, we are not being absolved from those things. However, we learned earlier that because of their obedience, God had opened a door to the kingdom. And here we learn that because of their obedience, it has yielded them protection from the time of testing that will come upon the world. This time of testing is known to somebody, by some people as the great tribulation, right? A time on the earth where it'd be really hard to live, really hard for people. And it's really like Jesus is saying here, to test those who belong to this world. This time of testing will be to test those who belong to this world. And also uh, those whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life. It will be time to test those who, unlike Philadelphia, have not obeyed God's commands. As we read verse 11, Jesus encourages them to hold on to what they have. Verse 11 says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take away your crown. Here Jesus says he is coming soon. And we have to be mindful that our soon is not Jesus soon. We're not working on the same clock, right? Jesus is not time bound like we are, right? Peter actually explains this and breaks it down like this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 9. He says, but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so when we say soon, that's not talking about next week, right? That's not talking about lunchtime today. We don't know exactly what Jesus means by this. The Bible tells us that no one knows the day nor the hour, but the one thing that we do know for sure is that he is going to return. Jesus admonishes the Church of Philadelphia to hold on to what they have, hold on to their obedience, hold on to their faithfulness, and to continue to persevere so that no one will take away their crown. We know that the crown is simply a symbolic of the reward for their faithfulness to God. Jesus is saying, hold on so that you will not lose your reward. As we move on to verse 12, for all who are victorious, all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. They will never have to leave it, and I will write on them the name of my God. And they will be citizens in the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Verse 12 focuses 
on the future for those who are victorious in Christ. It opens by taking, it opens by talking and stating that all who are victorious will become pillars in the temple of my God. Pillars are a picture of strength, stability, and dignified beauty. As we share, as I shared earlier in today's message, Philadelphia, the city of Philadelphia was plagued with frequent earthquakes, right? And when these buildings would collapse during the earthquake, oftentimes the only thing that would be remain standing are the pillars. What Jesus is saying here is that Jesus offers us the same strength to remain standing in him when everything around us is crumbling. Jesus states that those who are victorious will have a permanence. He states that not only will they become pillars in the temple, but they will never have to leave it. And let's take a moment to consider how intentional Jesus is being with his language and his word choice right here. Right, we talked about the, the earthquakes in Philadelphia. We talked about how people have to evacuate often because of the destruction, because of the earthquakes, right, that it caused the citizens. Here, Jesus is so intentional and being mindful of their history. Jesus says that all who are victorious will become beautiful pillars that have strength, stability, and fortitude that to withstand the earthquakes, to withstand the struggle of life, to restrain things that shake their faith, but they will also have permanence, right? The nuisance of dealing with the earthquakes that they were used to, having to evacuate, they will not have to do this as people who are following Jesus, right? Yes, they may have to do this in the Church of Philadelphia, but in Jesus's new kingdom, they will not have to worry about these things. They will have not have to worry about the foundation. They will not have to worry about standing firm. They will not have to worry about relocating or evacuating because they will have permanence and they will have stability. Jesus further states in this uh, verse that he will write on them the name of God. This works together with the image of the pillar that Jesus said that they would be, right? Because in ancient in the ancient world, having a special inscription on the pillars uh, was something that they typically did in the temples, right? This honored maybe a faithful member of the city, someone who was distinguished for their service, maybe a priest or something of that nature, right? Philadelphia honored its illustrious sons by putting their names on pillars of its temples so that all who came to worship might see and remember. So when Jesus said he's going to write the name of God on them, he's painting this elaborate picture for them, giving them this illustration that they can connect from what they see on a daily basis to what he is going to reward them with as well on a grander level in heaven. Furthermore, those who are victorious having the name of God written on them seems to be in direct opposition of those who will receive the mark of the beast that we'll learn about further in Revelation. And I know all of you have probably heard about the mark of the beast, right? Uh, 666, whatever you've heard, right? So this seems to be in direct opposition. We know that the enemy will identify his people with the mark of the beast. And Jesus is saying that he's going to identify his people by putting God's name on them. Jesus goes on to say that all who are victorious will be citizens of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven, my God. This is such an interesting piece because when you think about Jesus' time on earth, right, people expected Jesus to come and to be like some wild king overthrower who was slinging a sword, who was going to establish and rebuild the temple and all these different things in a certain image in their mind, right? 
And really what he was pointing at was this piece where he's talking about building everything new, a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And so we get this imagery from later texts in Revelation, Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. And it reads as this, it says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city of Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and, their, and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. We conclude verse 12 with Jesus saying that I will also write on them the new, my new name, right? And my first question, which probably should be yours as well, is what is this new name for God? And to be honest, we don't know. We don't know what is exactly saying. We don't know if it's a new name or if it's a, a new clarity on definition, an unspoken name, whatever it may be, we don't know. But I don't want us to get hung up on trying to investigate or speculate what that new name will be, but I want us to be mindful and focus our attention on living in a way that we may obtain this new name. We conclude our text for today in verse 13, where it says, everyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. It is important for us to be mindful that each of the letters to the churches wasn't just to that church, right? We've emphasized this throughout our series that the letters to the church weren't just for the churches, but it's for each of us and for anyone who has ears to hear. So then what are we supposed to take away from this text about the Church of Philadelphia? What is it that we should glean? What is it that we should be mindful of as we leave today's Bible study? Firstly, I want us to be mindful of this. It is important that we are obedient to the commands of our God and that we remain faithful as we persevere in the faith. One, we need to be obedient, faithful, and persevere as we are on this journey with Jesus. Secondly, following Christ and being obedient doesn't absolve you from difficult times or persecution on earth. And I say this as kind of a warning for us, right? So that we aren't discouraged if we experience difficult things or we're persecuted, right? That's part of the journey. And lastly, the reward from our Father far surpasses any difficulties or opposition or persecution that we might face here on earth. I always say this, following Jesus will not be easy, but it is always going to be worth it. So then, after each message, we always say that we have an opportunity to respond to what Jesus is saying to us. And so as we close out, I want to take a moment to um, invite you to consider what your response should be. Take a moment to think about what the Holy Spirit is saying to you. For some of us, the response may be to accept Jesus into our life for the first time. For some, it may be to repent. To repent and ask Jesus to help us to have strength to be obedient. 
And then the last one may be, we just need to pray. Simply pray that God will continue to strengthen us, that he will continue to lead and guide us on this journey. So let's take a moment. Think about the church of Philadelphia. Think about what Jesus has said to them, how he has applauded their faithfulness, their obedience, despite being small and strength, despite the persecution. What he has said about them, what is the Holy Spirit saying to you in this moment? And then we'll come back and close out today.